Ready? We ready? Grace and peace, everyone. Good to see y'all tonight. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. We are so glad uh, that you're here. Uh, I send uh, greetings and regrets uh, from Pastor Kurt. Uh, please continue to keep Pastor Kurt in your prayers. Um, things with his eye are fine, but the things in his body that cause that are not so much fine. And so he's uh, he was at the doctor today and getting some treatment with some more blood thinners. And so he is at, at home resting tonight. And so uh, please keep Pastor Kurt and all of uh, his family in your prayers. Uh, we will certainly miss him tonight. So thank you all very much. I'm going to begin by asking you a question. The answer is going to surprise you, I think. Uh, everybody knows there's 150 psalms, right? If you've been reading the Bible very long, you know that there's 150 psalms. Longest book in the Bible. How many of those 150 psalms have as enemies as their major theme? A major theme in those psalms. <laughs> a lot. Uh, how about 90 of them? Does that surprise you? Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. You know, the Psalms they're supposed to get you centered in God and kind of you know uh, ready for the days. You know, people uh, often encourage uh, others to read a Psalm a day, that kind of thing. And heck, ninety days out of every one hundred and fifty, you're reading about your enemies. Uh, and so, um, and just we're gonna wrestle with some of that tonight. Like, what does it take for somebody to rise to the level of an enemy for you? We're going to ponder that. Um, I think there was a lot more enemies, possibly, you know, just the world. You know, we talk about West Texas, it being a small world, uh, boy, Israel, small place, uh, lots of different factions, even within Israel, lots of different factions. And, and um, it's one thing to learn how to love people closest to you, uh, but what about loving your neighbors? And then what about loving your enemies is the place that Jesus takes it to, right? And so uh, we're going to be dealing with some of that tonight as we continue to follow Jesus around. Jesus was born in Judah, Bethlehem. He grew up in Galilee, Nazareth, and... Uh, he decided one day to walk through a place where Jews normally didn't walk through, and that place is Samaria, and that's where we're going to follow Jesus tonight. But as we uh, begin with prayer, we're going to go to one of those enemy psalms, uh, Psalm 109. I'm going to ask a question at the after we pray through this, and if some of y'all, if any of y'all can answer this question, uh, I'll give you any book in my library. probably don't want any of them anyway, but uh, I'll give you one. It's going to be a, if somebody knows this, you've been paying attention. Psalm 109. I'm just going to pray through the first 21 verses. It's long, um, but I just want you to, uh, as we, we take a deep breath and bow our heads and close our eyes, as we pray through this, just notice what really sticks out to you and what strikes you about this psalm. It's a psalm of David. Let's pray together. My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. For people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred, 
They surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me, but I am a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take the place of leadership. May his children be fatherless as his, as his wife, a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the inequity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may blot out their name from the earth. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but he hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse. May it come back on him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it be far from him. He wore cursing as a he wore cursing as a garment. He entered into his body like it entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. May it be like a cloak wrapped about him, like a belt tied forever around him. May this be the Lord's payment. To my accuser, to those who speak evil of me. But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your namesake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Well, before I ask you the question, what particularly struck you about the psalm? <laughs> uh, any graciousness David having towards his enemies? Uh, no, he pretty much wants God just to kind of like rub him into the ground at all costs. But one of the beautiful things about the psalms is that the psalms kind of help us get all that out. Notice who David is focused on. He's focused on himself, and he's focused on the people who have hurt him. And there's something that is left out, and that is his focus on God, right? And finally, at the end of the psalm, if you'll notice, that that's why I got all the way to verse 21, is that he begins the shift, right? And this is one of the things that Jesus wants to do. For his disciples, if y'all remember way back, uh, probably the second or third week when we began our study this fall, um, we journeyed up with the disciples in Jesus to Caesarea Philippi. Um, if y'all remember that. Um, and I, I think we talked about that here and on Sunday morning as well. And that Jesus uh, took them up there uh, as a rabbi to teach them something about what he was doing in the world. And so by going to Samaria, Samaria is, and I've got a map of Samaria, the, probably the third map there. 
Well, you can see, yeah, no, that's perfect. Go back to that other one. If you'll see the two kind of reddish, that's, that's Israel in Jesus's day. Uh, notice those places were where Jesus was born and where Jesus was raised, Judea and Galilee. Uh, Judea was more thoroughly Jewish. Galilee was more mixed with more Romans. But there in Samaria, um, man, <laughs> Jews would not even walk through the country. And Jews from Galilee had to get down to Judea regularly to celebrate the feast. And so they would walk around. The shortest distance between two places is... Yeah, and walking extra in the ancient world, that took extra calories. It's just, it's more, it is more expensive to walk further, right? And so they would always, because the hatred that these people had not the hatred wasn't just one way uh it was in both directions so before we follow jesus into samaria and into his discussions about samaritans i just want you to ponder this for a second what is it that stirs hate in people what stirs hate in you and we're just going to go with a simple uh definition of hate an intense passionate dislike for someone or some group that is hate and what is it that stirs and builds hate in people and if you're willing to get personal what stirs it in you we could probably argue about this but i really believe that at the root of hate is a scarcity mentality that when we look at our life when we look at the world and we look at others we make this false claim to ourselves that there's not enough so when there is not enough you look at another person and you begin to covet or envy or become jealous about something that someone has and an an assessment that we would often make is we would say that's not fair and so there's there is a sense that brews up in us of injustice in me not having enough and me looking at another and thinking they have more and I want it and I don't want them to have it. And so it begins to brew this hatred in us. Second thing is that when you're looking like that at each other, what, what magnifies in us is our problems, our own scarcity. And so we hate, and that that shame, remember what does shame say? Shame says you're not enough or you don't belong. So it builds this shame in us, and we don't like to feel shame, so one of the ways that we deal with shame is we blame. Oh, it's their fault that I don't have enough. Remember, that's one of the ways that Hitler... Uh, convinced the Germans to uh, uh, 
to begin to exterminate the Jews is they were in a place of weakness. They were in a pl- after World War One, and so Hitler made, wanted to, needed a group to make the scapegoats, and so the Jews became that. That may be a simplified explanation, but you see what happens. We got to find somebody to blame, and they're the problem because we don't want to be the problem. Third reason why hate grows is when you are looking at others and wanting what they have, there inevitably there's going to be some sort of, of battle for the goods or battle for what you see is scarce. And so there's going to be pain inflicted. And when somebody gets hurt, kind of the animal reaction that we have is to hurt back. And what stops, then, the cycle of violence? I mean, why, are the Hatfield, why were the Hatfields and McCoys in such a long, uh, long feud? Right? Anybody know? What's that? Who? Neither would give an inch. Over what? I don't remember. <laughs> right? Because it's just like, just, just the hurt. Back and forth. Back and forth. Back and forth. So Jesus is taking his disciples, right, into this place, this territory, where there has been a lot of pain and suffering inflicted in all directions uh, over that little little strip of land, you might say. And as a result of all that tension, there is deep-seated Hatred. To kind of get a sense of uh, of all this, kind of give some background. This is where Kurt would come in. Come on, Kurt. Right. Uh, we got to go back. So here we are, the first century. Uh, we got to go back to the time of King Solomon to understand why this animosity happened between Samaritans and Jews all the way back then. So if you'll remember, um, the, uh, David consolidated the kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah in the, in the South, he consolidated them and they were the United Kingdom and everybody was happy. Well, kind of, um, the tribes in the North, uh, were loyal to David Yet they still resented David because of the way things played out with Saul. And um, how David had at one time in his life aligned with the Philistines. And the Philistines were the ones that were the result of, they, of Saul's death. And so, But they were moving forward. They were moving on. Solomon became king after David. And then as Solomon is getting older in age, uh, Rehoboam is the one who is set to take the throne. And um, 1 Kings chapter 11 and 12 is really where all of this starts. Jeroboam, so Solomon, Jeroboam, Rehoboam. Those are the key players. So turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. All right. 
So Solomon has just died, and you can follow along on here. Uh, I think it'd just be good for us to, to read through a lot of this, and um, I think it's pretty easy to follow. So Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. So the northern tribes, are they're going to get behind this. They're going to get behind Solomon become, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, becoming king. Now when Jeroboam, now Jeroboam, whenever you read Jeroboam's story earlier in 1 Kings, he reminds you of Joseph. Like everything that Joseph did, he kind of was just really good at it. And Solomon noticed this. And guess what Solomon tried to do to him? Kill him. So he has to go into exile in Egypt. Where Joseph go? Went to Egypt, right? And so when Solomon dies, Jeroboam is going to get some courage. And he's going to go to Rehoboam, and in, in essence, to speak to Rehoboam on behalf of the northern tribes. All right. Okay. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us. But now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. So Jeroboam's trying to get to this place, keep keep the kingdom united. We're going to serve you, but man, we need just notice those words we went through about what causes hate. We need some justice. We need some fairness. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, these men, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them... My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid a heavy yoke on you. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So much for the days of peace, right? Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. As the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly. Rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father will scourge you with whips, and I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events was from the Lord. To fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahaziah and Silonite. These are prophets. 
When all Israel saw that the king had refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's sons? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. And the die was cast for generations of hatred between Judah and Benjamin and the ten northern tribes. Later, the Assyrians will come and destroy and exile the ten northern tribes. And guess what the response of the uh, Judeans were? They deserved it. Their buffer was gone, though, and not too long after that, they went by the wayside, too, and were exiled into Babylon. Um, and so those two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, uh, they come back from their exile. The others are basically lost to history. And they become they, the people that, were, that remained in the land after they were exiled by the Assyrians. They intermarried with the Assyrians and basically were called dogs and half-breeds and all sorts of punitive things. And um, when you get called those kind of names, uh, when you get accused of being the problem... Uh, all sorts of things get bad. So one of the things that Jeroboam did after this is he's like, you know, the Bible says that the people have to go to Jerusalem to worship. Well, if they go down there to David's territory, they may start um, uh, giving their allegiance to Rehoboam. I can't have that. So he built two temples. One in Bethel, which is in the south. It's right on the border, uh, close to the border between Judah and Samaria. And then one up in the north, the farthest northern city in Israel, Dan. And you know what they erected there? Anybody? Anybody? Golden calves. Ooh, when you read that, it's like, ooh, this is not going to end well. Right? Uh, from Exodus 33, right? This is not good. It doesn't go well. I mean, God makes a promise to Jeroboam. If you'll hear my voice, if you follow all of my commands, I will make your kingdom prosperous. He did the exact opposite. So, what happens when Jesus and his disciples are headed to Jerusalem for one of the feasts? And uh, the disciples have one idea, and Jesus has another. The Chosen does a good job. Uh, if, if any of y'all are not familiar with The Chosen, uh, it is a multi-episode, multi-season um, a project, a uh, TV show about the life of the disciples uh, as they follow Jesus. And uh, this is really good. These, Jesus is headed to Samaria, and this is how they portray it. Hungry? Almost there. What city is that? Jezreel, the southernmost town in Galilee. From there we veer east to the Jordan River. Rabbi, where are you going? Do you need something? This way, friends. 
I'm sorry, but the map shows that Jezreel is two miles southeast of here and is met by a road east of the Jordan. We need to adjust our course 30 degrees. We're to not going to the Jordan. We're going through Samaria. Are you telling a joke? There's a place that I want to stop. Plus, it makes our journey shorter by almost half. And our odds of violent attack more likely by double. <laughs> Is that an exact figure? Forgive me, teacher, but it's safer to go around Samaria by way of the Jordan and the Decapolis. Would you join me for safety reasons? But Rebbe, Samaritans. Good observation, Big James. What's your point? Rabbi, these were the people that profaned our temple with the dead bones. They, they hated they us. They fought against us with the Seleucids in the Maccabean Wars. I've never even spoken to a Samaritan. And we destroyed their temple a hundred years ago. And none of you here were present for any of these things. Listen, if we are going to have a question and answer session every time we do something you're not used to, it's going to be a very annoying time together for all of us. We'll be fine. And if we get attacked, Simon would be happy to show us what to do. Absolutely. Right. So follow me. So not only do they have these hundreds of years issues with these people that live in Samaria but what they did really good in the chosen is they unpacked the most recent events that the Samaritans had a hand in profaning the temple in Jerusalem you remember if you remember the story about the woman at the well she's a Samaritan woman we're going to talk more about her later but one of the issues that arises in their conversation is where do we worship you Jews say you have to go to Jerusalem. Well, the Samaritan says, nope, we profane that thing. And just 100 years before Jesus, the Jews took their temple. By this time, the temple was uh, right outside of Shekhar on Mount Gerizim. That was where the temple was, and the Jews destroyed it. So you see the Hatfield and McCoy thing going here? You profane our temple, we'll destroy yours. And then what's next after that? Well, just perpetual, ongoing uh, hatred. So as uh, Jesus makes his way um, into uh, Samaria, most likely he went into Samaria more than once. Uh, with his disciples. You know, he's with his disciples for three years and more than likely took them more than one. It's hard to, to piece all this uh, time together. Uh, but it, turn in your Bibles to Luke 9, 52. And this gives you a little bit of sense of, of this, what we just read, and then the next thing, uh, how escalated this stuff gets uh, with his disciples. Luke chapter 9... And we'll start in verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. This is really a major break in Luke's gospel. So he is making this resolute uh, facing to Jerusalem. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. 
Like nothing's going to stand in his way. And he sent messengers ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this. Yeah, this won't read anymore. Let me just show you from the chosen what happens. Hey, where are you going to tell Jesus our plan? The group said to leave it alone. Also said, this is James and John. So, let's let him. Why do you think he picked us to plant those fields? I'm starting to wonder about that. If I had known it was a Samaritan field. Jesus will sort it out. Rabbi. Well, you couldn't wait, could you? We're sorry, we just uh, wanted to clear a few things up, if that's okay. By all means. You Jewish boys are far from home. Yes, as a matter of fact, we are. Shalom to you too. Here's our traditional Jewish greeting for you. Lift a finger. That was a warning. Try it again and see what happens. Quiet, big James. So long to you too. <gasps> you filthy dogs! I said quiet. Let us do something. What could that achieve? Defending your honor. They revile and humiliate you. They deserve to have bolts of lightning rain out and incinerate them. Yes, fire from the heavens. Fire. You said we could do things like that. Say the word and it will happen. Why not? We knew we couldn't trust these people. We shouldn't have come here in the first place. They don't deserve you. Why do you think I had you work Melek's field? What was I trying to teach you? To, to help? You think it was just to be more helpful? Or to be better farmers? It was to show you that what we're doing here will last for generations. What I told Fotina at the well, and what she then told so many others, it's sowing seeds that will have a lasting impact for lifetimes. Can you not see what's happening here? These people that you hate so much are believing in me without even seeing miracles. It's the message. The truth that we're giving them. And you're going to get in the way of that because a few people from a region you don't like were mean to you. That they're not worthy? What, you're so much better? You're more worthy? Well, let me tell you something. You're not. That's the whole point. It's why I'm here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Rabbi. As we gather others, I need you to help show the way. To be humble. We will. You wanted to use the power of God bring down fire to burn these people up? Well, it sounds a lot worse when you say it that way. <laughs> you too. 
were like a storm on the sea. Come on. Thunder exploding out of your chests at every turn. <laughs> Fact. That's what I'm going to call you from now on. James and John, the sons of thunder. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Today, it was not good. But strong passion can be a good thing when channeled for righteousness. I just may have to delay giving you that authority we discussed earlier. I love how they, they pull all that together. Uh, I'll just go ahead and finish reading that passage um, in uh, chapter 9. When the disciples James and John saw this, that they had been rejected, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. And what I like about the way that they pulled all that together was that Going through Samaria was not just a shortcut, but it was a way to help his disciples to understand that their perspective on what Jesus was going to do was too small. And if you are studying the scriptures carefully, um, especially the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts, it really takes all the way to about the 10th chapter of Acts for the disciples to really understand this and to be okay with it. That for so long, they felt like that this was just for us and for the Jewish people. And they wanted it to be like that. Uh, we, are the cho- we are the people of God, the chosen people. The Messiah is for us. No, by Jesus taking his disciples to Samaria and ministering to Samaritans, even though they were rejected by some, some accepted them for sure. Um, He was showing them that no, the kingdom is for all. That speaks a lot to you and me, right? Because we're the ones that carry this kingdom forward. I mean, we pray it regularly. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that may be people that we're not very comfortable with. People that are very different from us are going to be dependent upon our willingness to see past that and to reflect the character of God into their life regardless, right? And so it shouldn't surprise us as uh, we make our way through the Gospel of Luke, there we were in Luke chapter 9. Uh, Jesus uh, sends out the 72, uh, the 70 or the 72, according to which translation you're, you're reading there. He sends them out to do the things that Jesus had been doing. And they come back and they are pumped. They are filled with joy um, uh, with all that God had done through them. And then just right off of the heels of them going out into the world, quote unquote, you wonder how far they went. You wonder, did they go back to Samaria or did they walk around Samaria? You just kind of wonder, 
right? Because we've had this confrontation, and now he sends them out. Where did they go? In Matthew, uh, Jesus explicitly says, don't go to the Samaritans. In Luke, it doesn't specifically say that. And so right on the heels of that, they get back. They're celebrating. We get to uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. The parable of the good. Yeah, we know this, right? And uh, what we've been learning on Sunday mornings uh, for sure is that one of the things that Jesus did in teaching through parables is that most parables had a certain degree of shock value to them, right? And certainly this parable, like, whoa, what do you mean? The Samaritan is the hero. Wow. But it's curious. We started out our study tonight talking about enemies and what in our own lives and in the world causes hatred to build and stir. These are questions that people throughout history constantly ask as we're trying to learn how to engage conflict or avoid conflict. This is what what is getting asked. So verse 25, here we go. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Quoting Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 right there. And love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 1918. So a quote from Deuteronomy, a quote from Leviticus. This is it. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Love God, love your neighbor. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Basically, what is he, what is what he's asking is this: Who in my life am I supposed to emanate love to? He wants to know. Classic, classic parable, right? In reply, Jesus said, "A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho." is basically on the border between Judah and Samaria. Masterful stroke here. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came back to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Of course, this is all very loaded. The road is between where? And then plus the three other traveling festivals they would have been in Jerusalem. Um, Most likely they are going to do their duty. 
if you get close to blood or a dead body, what did it say? They left him what? Half dead. They didn't know if he's dead or alive. And so if they touch this guy, they can't go and do their work in the temple. They're unclean for a period of time. So that's why they're walking by on the other side. But when a Samaritan, and just notice that even for Jesus to utter the word, the, the air would have been sucked out of the, the room. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where this man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for an extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go be like a Samaritan. Said no Jew ever. (laughs) Until Jesus. Yeah. Wow. They had valid reasons to hate each other. But when the Messiah comes and we start living our life according to the values of the kingdom of God, one of the shifts that has to take place in our life is the shift from scarcity to abundance. That in the kingdom of God, there is always enough. In the first video that I showed you, what, what's Jesus saying? He, he, he's like, we're going to be fine. We're going to be okay. It's... We, we, we can go. We can go this way. We can go into uncomfortable places. Why? Because with me, there's always enough. Right? And so just kind of land in that place uh, tonight. Like, what types of people, what types of situations cause your previous narrative to, real, to, to rear its ugly head? That there's not enough. And so here's, here's a good, good indicator that we're living in our past narrative. It's when we start pointing our fingers at the news. And we say, you know, it's their problem. It's their fault. Like a pointy finger... It's an indicator that we're, li- they're l- we're looking at the world through the lens of scarcity instead of abundance. And Jesus uses this very divided, um, charged relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans uh, to teach this very, very important lesson more than a lesson for the king in the kingdom it's a way of life 
It's not an option. To live in the kingdom is to be able to get beyond that and get beyond those things in us that stir our hate to present ourselves to others in such a way. Remember, that's following Jesus should lead us to this place. And we, we've got to have this vision for our lives and this vision for one another. And I really want y'all to hear this tonight. Is this, we as followers of Jesus have this optimistic view of what God can do in our lives. Like, oh, God, God, God can never change me. God can never make me patient enough. God can, well, do you see where your, your focus is? It's on yourself and not on what God can do. So this work that God wants us to do, yeah, that God can so work in our lives as we cooperate with him that no matter what type of people we are around, when they see us, when they look at us, they think of God. That they see our compassion and our graciousness, our slow to angerness, can I say that? Our abounding love and our faithfulness. And then when they look at us, they think of God. Now, continuing to kind of beat this drum, what hinders that in our lives is that we have this narrow focus of scarcity. That we don't believe there's enough. So we don't trust God to lead us into these hard places. So what are your thoughts or questions? About the Samaritans. About why Jesus may have gone to this place. and I, mean, I, I would assume that that's Jesus' most famous parable. Right? And he uses the Samaritans as his punchline to get his disciples to understand. <laughs> Peter, remember that, that famous line, whenever the Holy Spirit falls on the, on the Gentiles? He says, I now know that, that God shows no partiality. I wonder if he thought of that parable. Questions? So when Pastor Kurt's here, y'all always ask all kinds of questions. <laughs> Does Pastor Kurt is more confusing than me or something? <laughs> I don't know. Come on. Everybody's good? Wait, wait, wait. We got to have your microphone. So Jesus was trying to instigate, instigate peace. Oh, yes, it, yeah, it, certainly. More, more than instigate peace. I mean, one of the very essence, the 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 central realities of the kingdom of God is to bring people together, uh, to be people who we were originally intended to be. Think about what happened right after the Garden of Eden incident when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. What was the first thing that happened? Finger pointing. Next chapter, turn the page. What happens? Come on. Brother kills a brother. It's violence. And the kingdom of God reverses all that. As we trust 
the resources of the kingdom. You see, with Jesus comes forgiveness. Forgiveness of our sins. And that we, in turn, get to pass that value of forgiveness onto others. I wonder how that looked when Jewish followers of Jesus brought the gospel to Samaria. In Acts, it happened, right? Uh, Philip led the charge. And I wonder how that happened. You know, that really stunk when you threw bones in our temple. Yeah, that really stunk whenever you tore our temple down. But now the temple of God is here. Right? It's not there, but it's here. That we take heaven wherever we go. And we don't have to fight over the past. Must have been a beautiful thing. Yes, sir. I was uh, reading not long ago in a, there's a New Testament scholar named Munther Isaac. He's a Palestinian uh, Christian. And he was, he was talking about a, uh, a layer to the parable of the Good Samaritan that I had not picked up on, but it, it gets right at what you're saying. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs. He says, we must pay attention to the details of the story here. Jesus says that the man who was attacked fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. This man was left both naked and unconscious. As a result, the two religious people could not detect from his accent where he was from, and he was not dressed, so his clothes further could not Mm. disclose his identity. Wow. In other words, it would have been hard to determine his nationality or religion. Could this be why the two religious people who passed by did not stop to help him? Could it be because they were not able to determine his identity? So here's the dilemma. Who is he? A Roman soldier? A Samaritan? A Jew? Should I help him or not? And that's exactly the point. He is a human being. Helping him cannot be a matter of choice. He is a neighbor. Uh, where do I draw the lines? Jesus comes and removes the lines. There is no circle. There is no us and them when defining the neighbor. Everyone is a neighbor, and we are called by God to, God to love them as ourselves. It is not a matter of choice. We cannot pick and choose our neighbors. Yeah, let that settle with you. We cannot pick and choose our neighbors. Wow. What an amazing gift we have been given. Wow. And so that's the way Luke sees it, uh, for sure. Matthew's gospel and Luke, they kind of end in a couple of different, in in different places. But if you'll remember how Luke kind of ends Jesus' time on earth, you know, right before Jesus ascends to the Father in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, and you will be my witnesses, or the word in Greek is martus, the word that we get for martyrs, right? You will be my martyrs. Martyr is not just somebody who dies for the faith, but somebody who bears witness to their faith. And where are we going to do that? In Jerusalem, go back to that, that middle map. I think it's the middle one. Go down one. Other one. Sorry. Yeah, there we go. 
So you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So that's right there in the middle of Judea. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, you would say that Luke, Jesus, they're making a geographic statement about how the gospel is going to spread. No, it's more than that. It is geographic, but it is also ethnic. It is, I mean, people were so consumed with the temple and being close to the temple that the closer you were to the temple gave you permission to look down on people that were further away from it, right? So if you lived in Jerusalem, you would look down on people who lived in the hill country of Judea. If you were in Judea, you looked down on people that lived in Samaria and even in Galilee. It's all about proximity to the temple. And you get it in Acts. You get to the middle of the book after the stoning of Stephen. People finally get out of town. They finally leave Jerusalem living into this call. And when they start getting out of town... That is when the gospel begins to spread. It's like the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. Whenever pressure is upon the witnesses to bear witness to what God is doing in their lives, they go out and we spread it, right? And the temple is no longer in Jerusalem, but the temple is every follower of Jesus, right? And so no... That when you're loving that very unlovable person, somebody that's very different from you, that you have the backing of the presence of God in you to do it well. And they will see God in you as you seek to be faithful. What else? Well, I would invite you uh, sometime this week to read John chapter 4, the front end of John chapter 4. That is Jesus' conversation with a Samaritan woman. So talk about, whoa, what is Jesus doing? it's really, it's, it's quite, the, quite the story. If you're interested in exploring the chosen more, if you'll go to season one, episode eight, man, the end of that, that episode where Jesus has this conversation with, uh, they name her Fatina. They name this woman Fatina in the chosen. It is such a powerful scene. And you'll say, oh, we learned that tonight. Oh, we learned that tonight. And it will kind of just kind of sink in uh, kind of the things that we have uh, studied tonight. So did we miss your question? (laughs) (laughs) Which one? (laughs) Oh, the first question. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. So Psalm 109 Which apostle is most clearly associated with Psalm 109? And why? You get both both parts of that, you get to go take a book off my bookshelf. Anybody? Daniel, you know? Ooh, I thought Daniel might have got it tonight. Who? No, Paul, Paul. Judas. Who said Judas? Now you got to tell me why. Why? 
Yeah, but there's a very, there's a very specific reason. Um, the apostles who remain, when they are replacing Judas, they actually quote Psalm 109, verse 8. Let me read it for you. It's earth-shattering. Psalm 109... Psalm 109, verse 8. This is David talking about his enemies. And so one of the things that I think the apostles were doing is they were trying to get us to think about the whole sum total of Psalm 108. But this is, or Psalm 109. So this is Psalm 109, verse 8. You ready for your life to be shaken? May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. And they quote that in Acts chapter 1. May he take, and may another take his place of leadership. And they're talking about Judas. So, so there you go. Curious. Um, part of me thinks that Luke, as he writes Acts, especially the front end of Acts through the first 10, 12 chapters, that what he is doing he is building this argument of how the disciples are really struggling to get it right. Who takes Judas's spot? Matthias. You ever heard about Matthias since? Uh, what's another apostle that arose from the ashes of uh, the book of Acts? Uh, his name was Paul. And how much more do you hear about Paul? It, they could have been, they very much could have been taking matters into their own hands and not letting God fill that slot on God's terms. And God's will was done. And uh, Paul became that, really became that replacement uh, for Judas. And it's interesting, he and Judas are a lot alike. I mean, man, they were, they were both people who wanted to fight or Israel and Peter to Paul to the point of killing Christians. So uh, something to, to consider. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for all of us that you will sensitize our spirits and make us aware as you call us to Samaria type places whether it's in our family at work just when there's people in our lives that make us uncomfortable help us to be like your son and our savior who did not step away but stepped towards them and Lord, if there are barriers in our life that are hindering us from displaying your character in the way we live our lives, I pray that you will convict us of that. And give us the courage to be the people who stop the hate, who stop the circle of violence. 
in this world that we find ourselves in. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. And everyone said, Amen. Go in peace, brothers and sisters. Thank you.